In the second to last installment of the Best of 2023 Behind the Drapes podcast, we're going to go back in time and listen to a conversation I had with a good friend and one of my co-residents at Brown University, and that's Andrew Weingartner. In this episode, not only do you get to hear about some of the cool adventures that he goes on in terms of side hustles, but he really drops some great knowledge and great tidbits about how he's been able to be so successful financially before he's even hit in the point of being an attending. Now he isn't attending and I'm sure he's doing great financially, although he just had a baby, which obviously has its own hit on your finances. But this whole second season was all about financial literacy. And if you're in the medical field and you haven't really gotten much exposure or education in this realm, I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to these episodes. But in the meantime, just sit back, enjoy this episode with a dope friend, Andrew, and Happy New Year. Hey, this is Kenny. Thanks for listening to Behind the Drapes. The goal of the show is to inspire and give insight into the healthcare system through the lens of an anesthesiologist. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the channel so that you get new episodes as they come out. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back, Andrew Weingartner, to the show. Hey, what's going on? Happy to be back. Big appearance for the last episode and a super fun topic that we're going to talk about. Uh, it's side hustles. Oh, yeah, money. Uh, making, making money on top of money that you're already making. Uh, but stacks let's, on stacks. let's talk about when you first started making money ever in your life. Do you remember the very first job you ever had? Uh, yeah, I worked, uh, I worked at like a fast food restaurant at an amusement park. Uh, it was basically like a diner right underneath like a huge roller coaster called the Mamba in uh, Kansas City at Worlds of Fun. I think I spent half my paycheck on gas just getting to and from the amusement park for work. But it was a black because it was all like 14 and 15 year olds. So it was, it was fun just to like hang out at work uh, there and get paid basically minimum wage. How old were you? Um, I think I was 15, no, 15 and a half, because I had to be old enough to get my driver's permit, but without the license, it was just before I turned 60. I was just old enough to be legally allowed to drive to and from work. Uh, and it was technically on Missouri, the Missouri side of Kansas City uh, at the time. I worked there for probably a year off and on uh, during the season. I, I took my first big boy job as a server at IHOP. Got paid like $2 an hour there, but made really good money at tips because I worked the overnight. I worked, show up at 5 or 7 p.m. and work until 7 a.m. Uh, so made a lot of money when the bars closed around 2 to 3 a.m. Everyone would come in really drunk, leave huge extortion amounts for tips. The bartenders come in around 3 to 4, and they make their living off tips. They always hook you up as well. Tell and me. so it's probably the most money I've ever seen, uh, even compared to life as a resident. So working uh, those night shifts as like a 17, 18-year-old in high school. Tell me you have a good IHOP middle of the night story. I have very many, and most are not safe for work. Tell me your safest. In, like, uh, let's see. Safest for the airways. Uh, safest for the airways. I mean, we sometimes get like celebrities. We'd get like uh, NFL, uh, Kansas City Chiefs players coming in at like three in the morning. They would just like make it rain for the whole house when they would come in. Uh <laughs> There was That's never amazing. any like violent trip. Yeah, so that was really cool. It's like I don't, I 
don't I appreciate that they're like making a rain in an IHOP at three in the morning, <laughs> but I'm here for it. You know, it's like a oh sentence. my god, that's amazing. Uh, we never had any like belligerent, violent drunks or anything like that coming in, but lots of like very heated arguments between like strangers at different tables over absolutely inconsequential inane things about like if the color of the carpet was turquoise or purple or just goofy <laughs> stuff like that. People are really passionate at three in the morning. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, they usually have pretty good tips. Um, I worked funny. a couple of jobs in uh, college, usually selling blood to like, you know, you can sell plasma, but that usually, you usually get like, what, a 200, 100 to 200 kind of the first time you come in, but it's only like 30 bucks every time after that. But I used to be next to UC Irvine and I they had all kinds of just random studies that you could sign up for. We'd go like, they would like make you really cold and take blood samples and those pay pretty good. So I used to do those like two or three times a month for pretty good side money in a, a college. Don't have any cancer that I know of yet from any of those things. So it seems to have worked out so far. Uh, I think I mentioned last time I took a job teaching English in Japan for a year after college before med school. Probably the best year of my life. Didn't pay that great, but it was decent money. I think it was like uh, 40 grand for the year at the time, which is like barely covered. But I was pretty frugal while I was there. But that, you know, made okay money. Um, Did things like medical surveys. Didn't really have a ton offered myself, but it would help like residents when I was a med student do those. Uh, on websites like Sermo or uh, Medscape and things like that. So we'd have like these paid surveys and they'd give me a cut of it for helping like fill out just like chart reviews or whatever. Uh, it was mostly just for marketing research because all these drug companies are wanting to like do market research for what would you prescribe as the third line treatment for this or that or whatever is, you know, a third year med student. I don't have a clue, right. but just marketing research or whatever. Uh, you know, and various things like that. And then I guess the most recent thing I've done for money is kind of what we alluded to last time uh, is this uh, job I currently have as a side gig, uh, so to speak, uh, consulting sort of, or just teaching AI what to do at uh, Google for interpreting medical data. Cool. Yeah. How did you even get involved with this gig? Um, so I've always kind of been interested in informatics and kind of, I love medicine. I lo- I'm never going to leave clinical medicine or have no plans to. Obviously, I'm still a resident. It's a little early to be making grandiose statements like that. Uh, but I have no intention of ever leaving clinical medicine. But I always like the idea of kind of doing something outside of clinical medicine as well. I kind of miss doing stuff with like math and physics, which you get to do a lot of in undergrad and pre-med, but not so much in med school or medicine. Uh, so I kind of want to do something related to informatics with that. Big data, AI is always interesting to me. So I did a couple of like uh, coding boot camps while in med school. I tried, you know, a dozen times during fourth year a lot when I had a bunch of free time. Uh, and then through met some of the med students uh, here at Brown where we are at residency. Um, they kind of through a connection with one of them, a position opened up um, with Google to kind of help them sort of basically train AI to recognize is this that or is this this other thing? Does this make any sense? Yes, you know, very easy stuff. Um, but it pays pretty good. Uh, and it's just kind of another step kind of in the direction where I want to ha- kind of have an avenue of uh, side hustles in the future. You can do it in your pajamas, which is really nice <laughs> compared to like moonlighting, which, you know, you have to actually show up for work and uh, be on your team in the hospital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, how would, what is the uh, definition of informatics? Uh, that's a good question. It's like, uh, I feel like it's one of those questions where, you can get a million different answers, which is such a cliched answer. What, what is it? What does it mean to you? 
uh, I guess it would say it's more of a, a really vague and non-committed way to just say you're interested in big data uh, and how it relates to basically patient information and what you do with that patient information. Um, so it could be like algorithms for, you know, being efficient OR times. How do you like make the scheduling for making sure there's enough staffing for the cases that need to go and still enough like wiggle room for extra cases that are added on? Um, how do you kind of get facilitate like early warning signs if something's going to go wrong, like in the ICU or the perioperative periods that involves, again, big data? How do you like get these big data from like these silos of these medical machines into an EMR into like a provider who's going to see it? And how do you present in such a way they're able to like uh, practically do something with it? Um, so there's a lot of moving parts and components to all of that, whether it be like collecting the data organizing and cleaning the data, making the data presentable in such a way um, or showing it to like providers who are actually going to be able to do something with it and meaningful data to them, not just a hodgepodge of nonsense. And is it like data that's going to be that they can is clinically relevant enough for them to do something actionable on? Um, so there's a lot of things. A lot of people use informatics uh, if they want to go to like C-suite type of stuff and think of like chief of informatics and that type of thing. Uh, again, we're thinking like, here's our hospital's total bed capacity. How do we like facilitate the logistics of making sure we're never all the way full, but basically almost always almost full, um, things like that. Versus if you want to go more into research again with big data, like whether it be big genomics type of things or epigenetics, big studies like that, or more into the entrepreneurial thing, uh, which is what you see all over the place now is... Uh, there's a lot of money in healthcare, not so much money to be made in healthcare, but in terms of like what you know the US spends on it, it's astronomical. So there's a lot of there's a big pool there of money. And so everyone wants a piece of it. And there's always ways to make things more efficient. Uh, and that's what all these you know entrepreneurial groups are looking to get a piece of the pie of. Have you seen informatics used in anesthesiology in any like recent examples? Um yeah, I mean almost uh like at our institution, for example, Dr. Cohen's pretty heavily involved in a lot of that. So he actually, when I was talking about staying here after residency, he kind of opened up this huge smorgasbord of how they kind of make the block times and uh, organize things for what. Sur so surgeons always say, it'll take me this long to do this operation. Cohen doesn't have to even hear it. He's got the data right in front of him from the informatics guys. Okay, this is how long it takes this surgeon to do this type of surgery with this type of thing. And they're able to like organize and block the schedules out that way. And they can like automate the whole process because they've cleaned all this data very easily to be very easily read by like these very basic AI algorithms to sort of organize in the most efficient means uh, possible. So it's a very like easy example right there so you don't have tons of staff sitting there when nothing's going on and then no staff when things actually need to roll back uh, and that you're kind of always maximizing the efficiency in that sense hmm. which i think can honestly make or break a hospital pretty quickly if their ors aren't run very efficiently mm -hmm. and i think it's what... a pretty unique perspective of anesthesia actually is kind of i think of a lot of specialties anesthesia is a pretty unique uh perspective with regard to how to efficiently sort of I guess, grease the wheels of uh, the ORs. Uh, what's a good example of a deficiency in efficiency in the operating room setting? Uh, a good example of a deficiency, I would say, is something that we're both uh, acutely aware of. Uh, certain places we go to for certain rotations, 
where there might not be enough staff or something to turn over a room, or you're waiting to start a next case based on like one particular type of healthcare provider you need, who's just, they don't have enough of. And then you've just got, you know, surgeons, circulating nurses, anesthesiologists, everyone just sitting there, most of them getting paid salaried or hourly doing nothing uh, based on this like one hang up, uh, which is a catastrophic waste of money or things just, you know, getting things started in the day. If uh, things are optimized and you've got to like, you know, get labs when the patient gets there, there's always hang ups, this or that. Oh, we forgot to get this consent. or we've got to get this, you know, nasal swap it wasn't done like an efficient manner. Again, that's huge amounts of time just burned. Uh, and then you've got, you know, rolls around four or five o'clock when certain healthcare providers, their shifts up. Now you've got the hospitals got to start paying big time for overtime, uh, double shifts, things like that, which is just hemorrhaging money as well. So there's lots of uh, ways that, uh, and that's just in like the setting that you and I are personally acutely aware of where hospitals can hemorrhage a lot of money pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. What made you so interested in inform- informatics? Um, I just like uh, AI, I guess. Not so much in like an intimate sense. I didn't do computer science as an undergrad or anything cool like that. I just did biology and philosophy. But always like my physics classes were my favorite. The math classes were my favorites. So like just being perfectly aware of that and like reading a lot of books as like a hobbyist on that kind of stuff is always very fascinating to me. So I just thought it'd be cool if I was able to integrate that in some form uh, into like my actual job uh, as a physician. What made you- There's a lot of opportunities for that. What made you want to do a coding class? Uh, Basically that. So like, uh, you know, you realize all these like, uh, you know, thousand foot view kind of understanding of like how AI works or machine learning works, how to integrate it into like a business or how to integrate it into like, you know, process and get silos to communicate to silos of like, uh, there's all this information over here. There's all this information over here. How do we get them to efficiently communicate to each other in a format that they can easily like, recognize and communicate to each other that's been like the biggest issue that the federal government's been tackling for a while now to make uh you know like the way we bill or code different procedures and things in medicine the way that's transferred across has been like a nightmarishly huge undertaking the federal government's been doing again to try to like get all these siloed like hospital systems to be able to communicate to each other uh, with patient data patient emrs and the way billing's done way and reimbursement's done uh, it's just kind of not so much getting the data, but getting the data in like a format that's able to be read by everyone uh, and quickly processed, not by humans, but by like machines, I'll be able to process a lot faster. Um, and, you know, very once you get below, below like a thousand foot view, very quickly realize you should have some basic understanding of like, you know, Python or R. And I did a, a little bit of R um, for research during med school. And that was kind of my first exposure to like data science. I thought that was awesome. Hmm. Um, and so that's, I'm never going to be like a, like a code monk or anything crazy like that. But just, you know, having at least enough understanding so you can speak somewhat intelligently uh, to people who are good at that sort of thing. So you're not, you know, totally clueless when you're trying to discuss like how you want to go about approaching different problems or things like that. Right. Absolutely. And a co- boot camp seems like the easiest way to just kind of get up to speed on some basics, basically. Uh-huh. And what gave you the drive and the energy to want to incorporate a side hustle into your residency career? Um, I don't have kids yet, so I have a lot of free time. Like, 
in that respect. As I'm sure you know, after uh, an anesthesia residency, after the first, I'd say, six, eight months, at least in our program, I feel like a lot of programs, the same has been true of all my friends at other places, you kind of figure things out a lot. You're done with your IT. You kind of have figured out the bulk of your studying, the bulk of kind of your flow. And you kind of like, you'll be sitting in the OR and you're like, all right, this is a long, like, you know, 10 hour spine case. What am I going to do while uh, nothing's happened right here? And they can, you know, do a lot of things. You can waste time. Uh, not that you should be, but you could, you know, waste time scrolling on your phone or it could be, you know, studying more again, or you could be kind of looking up other interesting things to kind of keep you engaged. And that's just one thing uh, that I find pretty interesting. Definitely wasn't able to commit any time or energy whatsoever during like uh, during intern year to this or during like say the first six, seven months of uh, CA one year either. Uh, but a lot during like fourth year med school, certainly last couple of years of anesthesia residency, times when you've got more downtime and mental bandwidth uh, to dedicate. You're right. You, you hit a sweet spot in residency where it doesn't have to control the entirety of your life. Yeah, you can kind of like autopilot a lot of stuff, which I really yeah. like. How much time? Anesthesia is awesome. <laughs> anesthesia is definitely the best. Uh, how how much time do you commit to uh, this side hustle? Uh, so for this one specifically, they wanted uh, a soft commitment of ten hours a week. Um, they don't always say, and the kind of the way this particular job I have now is they don't they'll have like different assignments or like uh, tasks to do, and there's like a group of people, and if you've got like the mental bandwidth, so I kind of thought in advance saying like. Uh, yeah, I've got probably 10 hours free this week. I've got 10 hours free that week, but I'm doing it like months in advance. So honestly, I have no idea how much free time I'm going to have that week. But unless I'm on vacation or something, generally I can say I've got, I'll have 10 hours of free time that week. Uh, and then they'll just give you like an assignment that they estimate will take about, you know, anywhere from like four to 10 hours. And you just build them by the hour, however long it takes you to do it. So obviously I spread it out. I'll do like maybe 15 minutes here, 30 minutes there, an hour there. A lot of it I'll just do at home in my pajamas, you know, which is pretty nice and relaxing. Again, like we said, a little different than the uh, mood lighting where you have to actually, you know, physically be at work. Um, and that's kind of it. But yeah, they usually, uh, for this particular job, they wanted someone to be able to commit at least that much. Um, and it's usually pretty short notice. They usually let you know the week before, hey, we've got this project. Who's available? And you say, I am. They send it to you and you just crank it out. What's like the typical project that you work on? Um, like I said, so it's pretty, uh, easy stuff. Cause again, you're just basically training and this is, uh, I don't want to, cause there's like a million NDAs you have to sign and things like that. So like basically you're just like, like with anything that like Google's not the only people doing this. Like everyone's done. Amazon's doing a lot. Uh, one of my friends doing it with them over at UCSD right now. Uh, but you're basically just training AI to be like, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. Yes, this is an appropriate way to define this or divide up this thing. Or it's basically just helping the AI understand things. Because uh, there's with machine learning and AI, there's ways you can get it to train itself uh, pretty easily. But the more esoteric the knowledge, the harder it is to train because it's not as generalized knowledge. And that's where it becomes a lot harder when we need specialized knowledge to train it. So you think just even when you're filling out like CAPTCHAs online, you're saying, this is a stoplight. This isn't a stoplight. When you're clicking the boxes, that's you training the AI. That's like mass way of training AI pictures for recognition. Same with like letters, all those captures where you like type in the word it says, all that's used to train Google, for example, Google among many other things on how to read books, like where they scan books online. Now Google's able to read handwriting because of things like that. 
And that's wow. pretty easy. Like if you can read English, you can do that. So it doesn't require very specialized knowledge to train the AI to do that. Same with recognizing like a line or a bus or whatever. Um, you can imagine as the more specialized the knowledge gets, the smaller the pool of people who can contribute to that get. And pretty soon you can't just have like a captcha to post on Twitter, like uh, which one of these represents a reduced ejection fraction or something like that. You're not, you know, it's like a smaller and smaller pool of like people who will be able to like, you know, intelligently tell the AI what uh, is or isn't true with that uh, kind of thing. So that's when they have to start basically paying people to do that type of stuff. Got it. That's that basically was... what I do. That was such a clear explanation of what you do. That was incredible. Yeah. And so it's like, it's super easy. Like you can have stuff on in the background and stuff, but it's just kind of like a step towards like what I want to do. It's easy uh, money on the side. And it's kind of being in that industry and talking to people like the engineers who do it and the doctors who are obviously much higher up in the design process of all this and kind of communicating with them. Like this doesn't really make sense. This question here, or this AI is not really understanding this. Like it's, formulating the question wrong or it is or isn't um, and things like that. So it's kind of, it's just a cool opportunity to kind of be like talking with those people and make a little bit of money on the side. Yeah. The money, I'm sure the money doesn't hurt. Yeah, absolutely not. So to leave us off here, you've clearly created this habit and carved out this time in your current career and your current life that you're probably going to be able to sustain going forward. Where do you see yourself 10 years from now um, as a physician and possibly as a consultant on the side? What type of job do you envision outside of anesthesiology? And what type of time commitment do you see yourself spreading between uh, your different careers? Uh, that's a good question. I'd still want to spend the majority of my time probably being practicing clinically, uh, of course. I mean, I because uh, I, I love anesthesia. I, I generally have a blast every day doing this, which I'm sure you can relate. Uh, but I would like some portion of it to be dedicated to doing things, not necessarily outside of medicine or anesthesia entirely, but some sort of other thing to kind of be challenging, fresh, new, talking with cool people in other disciplines. So whether, especially for me specifically, something related to informatics, more and more like big data machine learnings where I'm really interested in it again, but it's more of like a pretty amateurish level right here. I'm not exactly coding crazy machine learning algorithms yet, or probably ever will be. Uh, but just, you know, working with people who are is uh, pretty fun and exciting for me. Money aside, it's just kind of a cool uh, realm to be talking in and, uh, you know, talking with those kind of cool people and seeing all these cool developments that happen and kind of watching, you know, neural networks kind of emerge like a, you know, it's a really cool intelligence that you wouldn't have thought possible. Uh, like, you know, with like the, what's it called? The web chat, the GPT chat, chat or whatever GPT. that just came out recently. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that blew a lot of people's minds with how like intelligent that's able to sound mm -hmm. uh, when you're talking to it. Mm -hmm. Now imagine having something like that just focused on medicine, how intelligent yeah. you can get that. Yeah. And I don't think uh, AI is ever going to replace physicians or any of like the true white collar or blue collar, certainly not the blue collar work jobs, like the OIC, uh, you know, headline grabbing stories. I think um, it'll definitely play a much, much bigger role, as everyone else says, as far as in the toolbox of what we do use to kind of offload some more like the menial, banal uh, mm -hmm. bandwidth stuff. If we have to spend time like, calculating certain things or worrying about certain sort of trends we can just offload that to this and focus on like the bigger 
picture as far as management goes. I think we'll see probably a bigger uh, presence of that. And the OR is whatever we're in the hospital uh, with regard to that. Yeah, I think that's probably hopefully going to be one of the defining parts of our careers in medicine is just watching medicine become more and more efficient with tools like this. Yeah. I'm excited to see what you do, uh, where you go next year, because uh, BID is like the one of the premier places for that informatics and developing all this crazy, awesome stuff with AI in the ICU. So yeah, you'll be at like ground zero for all that. That's right. We'll be in touch. Yeah. Looking forward to it, man. I'll be working right. for you pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be collaborating. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks for your time. This was probably going to be our coolest episode this season. And I still have the rest of the season to record. But I could just tell with the way this episode went, it was eye-opening, enlightening. You have an interesting story and an interesting background. And you articulate it all really well. Uh, so this is going to be a killer way to end the season. And I thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me on. It was fun. Of course, dude. All right. I'll see you. See you at work soon. All right. See you. All right, <laughs> see you tomorrow, I think, actually. Yeah, you're at the Merriam tomorrow? Yeah, man. I think it's the CA3 Festival at the Merriam tomorrow. Hell yeah. Let's bring it. All right, bro. I'll see you later. All right. See you. Bye.